And before I even get to scripture, I just want to kind of give you all a little vision into my own heart and a little confession in my own heart. And as I began to study this and as I began to prepare this sermon, some of the convictions that the Lord was giving to me. And as I was preparing, one of the things that became very evident to me, and I don't know how this ever happened and when this happened in my life, is that for some reason, at some point in my life, I began to buy into a lie that if I'm a Christian and if I know the Lord, then good things are supposed to happen to me. And I don't know if that statement's something that resonates with any of you and if that's something that you've thought or that's something that you've felt before. But I think that for a lot of Christians, we buy into this idea that because I have a relationship with the Lord or because I'm going to church or because I'm serving in church or because I'm leading a Bible study, all right, God, now it's time to drop some blessings on me. And I don't know where that happened and I don't know when that happened, but as I've gotten older, it's become more and more evident in my life that at some point I bought into that. And I think that if you ask a lot of non-Christians about their perspective of Christianity, I think a lot of non-Christians as well will tell you that maybe one of the benefits of being a Christian is your life's better when you have God. And that's sort of true. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about how that sort of is true, and we're going to talk about reality as well. Because here's what started to happen to me. The older I got and the more life experience I got, I started to realize very quickly that whether I have a relationship with the Lord I hurt and I suffer and I go through pain just as much as anybody else does. And that as people, we're not immune to that. We turn on our TVs and we see hurt and we see, and we see misfortune and we see poverty and we see genocide and we see natural disasters. And I think that we have to understand that Christian or non-Christian, that stuff is real. And I think that what happens for a lot of people, once again, Christian or non-Christian, is when we have moments in our life where things don't go the way that we think that they should, or when we have moments in our life where we have experiences where we really feel extreme pain and extreme suffering, I think the tendency for everyone, no matter what you believe and no matter who you are, is to kind of point a finger at God and to kind of throw our hands up and say, okay, God, where are you? I mean, don't we do that? Isn't that a question that we've asked? And if you haven't asked that, I'm sure at some point you may. God, my life isn't going the way I thought it would. Or, God, I'm really hurting. Or, God, I'm really struggling. Where are you? And really the challenge that I want to give you today is as we look at Colossians and as we look at what Paul wrote, I think we need to start asking a different question. That when we go through our suffering and we go through our pain, instead of asking God, where are you, the question we should really be asking is, God, who are you? Because I think that when we understand who God is, it allows us to approach our circumstances and allows us to approach our suffering and our hardships in a much different way. And I think that the problem is, and this is what I'm going to talk a lot about today, is we live in a culture and we live in a society that in zero ways promotes that idea of who God is. But because we live in a culture and we live in a day and age that constantly keeps us distracted from God. And I don't know about you all, but I find it very difficult in my day today where I'll read the Bible and there's all these incredible stories about how people saw the presence of God and then I look at my own life and I'm like, okay, why are those things not happening to me? Why, do, why am I not seeing God in the same way that people in the Bible are reading? Or, or I'm sorry, people in the Bible are seeing him. So what we're going to do today is, is wrap up uh, and conclude in Colossians 3. And in some ways I'm going to piggyback on what Jeremy spoke about last week. So if you all have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians 3. I'm going to be reading at verse 15. If you don't have your Bibles, the, the words will be up here on the screen. Paul says this in Colossians. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you are called to peace. 
and be thankful. Let the, word of, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why don't you all pray with me real quickly? Lord, uh, we thank you for scripture and we thank you for your words and we thank you for the ways that you challenge us. And, and I pray for those that are in this room right now who are hurting and who are suffering, who do see hardship and brokenness all around us. Lord, I pray that you would teach every single one of us how to live in a day where your word seems to contradict the culture we're in. And Lord, I pray that as we hear some things that are difficult this morning, as we hear some truth and some conviction, Lord, that you would just allow us to not reflect on the words that I say, but allow us more, more and more to reflect on you. We thank you, God, and we love you just for an opportunity to come into your presence and worship today. And I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Okay, hypothetical here. Let's say that you and I go out to lunch today. And we're sitting across the table, and for a lot of you, I don't know you. And so I may start off by asking a question, something like this. What is a word that you would choose to describe where your life is right now? And I actually, right now, want you to think about that. If you can think of one word that describes where you are in life, what's the word that you would choose? And then what I want you to do, kind of take it a step further, is to also think about why you chose the word that you did. Okay? So I'll give you a second. And if you're, if you're taking notes or you have a pen, maybe you can write that down. You can look at it right in front of you because sometimes it can become even more real when you see it uh, in writing. If you were to come to me, let's say we had the exact same conversation. You approach me. Here are the words that I would choose. And I'm going to go ahead and, and take a risk here and say that the words that I'm about to say to you all are probably words that even though you may not have chosen it, you can relate to very quickly. The words that I would choose of, Tim, where is your life right now? And th- at this point, I would say, I am stressed out, I'm overwhelmed, I'm busy, and I'm anxious. And there's a lot of other positive things, because my life really is great, and I'm really a happy guy. But I think that for a lot of us, culturally, and just the day-to-day grind of how we are, we feel that way, don't we? Like, we look at our lives, and we're like, man, I always have something else to do. And I'm always, there's always one more thing. And I constantly am being pulled in all these different directions and people are asking me to do so much. But here's the problem. If we go back to Colossians 3, Paul kind of slaps us right in the face right at the beginning. Because if you look at Colossians 3 and if you think about what Jeremy talked about last week, Colossians 3 is all about, as men and women of God, this is the life we're supposed to live. And so last week what Jeremy spoke a lot about was, here's how God sees you. Okay, here's how, when God looks down, here's what he sees in you. And then here's what our response should be. And then what Paul does is he continues in Colossians 3, and, I, and we, I didn't read this and Jeremy didn't read it either. What he does is he basically gives a list of sins that we should try to avoid as Christians. And then here we are all of a sudden at the end of Colossians 3, and the first statement that Paul makes to us at the end is, let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts. And the reason why that kind of slapped me in the face when I started preparing for this sermon and when I, when I thought about preaching on this is because my guess is that for a lot of us, the word peace is not a word that many of us probably wrote down. And probably for a lot of us, the word peace is not something that's really in our vocabulary in 2010. Because we live in, a such, we live in such a chaotic culture today that there's really not a whole lot of peace. And I'm not talking about war. And I'm talking about all those things. I just mean within ourselves, that idea of peace. And some of you may be sitting here and you're saying, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Here's kind of the challenge I want to throw back to you. 
how do you spend your time during the day? Because I think that if, if we look at the way we spend our time and if we look at our schedules and we look at how we fill our schedules, I think to me, that says a lot about who we are as a culture in 2010. Because for a lot of us, we have a lot of toys. We have a lot of gadgets. And I don't mean little kid toys. I mean, we have our computers and we have our iPhones and we have our cell phones and we have our TVs. And for me, and I'm kind of taking a, taking a risk here, but I don't think I'm speaking things that the rest of us don't feel, I tend to fill my time with those things. Oh, I got a free minute, let me go check my Facebook. Or I got a free minute, let me go get on my iPhone. Or I have a free minute, hey, my favorite TV show's on tonight, I got to make sure I DVR that so I can watch it later. And I think that for a lot of us, if we think about what we fill our time with, I think in a lot of ways it causes a lot of distractions in our life. So I think externally there's some things that go on today to kind of show us this. And maybe some of you still don't buy in. It's actually interesting. I listened to a sermon recently, and the pastor was speaking, and he gave this example, which I thought was a pretty profound example. And he said there was a group of researchers in the 1960s who wanted to see how long it would take to record one hour of natural noise. So what they did was they went out in the middle of the woods, literally with a tape recorder, and they went out and they wanted to re see how long it would take. So how long can we record it before we hear an airplane or a helicopter or a car? Those types of things. So the guy goes out in the woods. In 1968, it took 16 hours to record one hour, which is natural noise. Same group of researchers in 2010, decided the same group, same, same people, decided to go do it again in 2010 to see how long it would take. So they go to the same place, do all the same things. To record one hour of natural noise, it took, it took uh, 2,000 hours. Okay? That's profound. 2,000 hours to just record one hour where you don't hear planes, you don't hear all the junk and the noise that many of us ignore on a day-to-day -day basis. So what am I getting at? Well, part of what I'm getting at is I think that because of all these distractions and because of all the toys that we have in our lives, in many ways, it prevents us from seeing who God really is. Because we don't really find ways to spend our time efficiently with the Lord. So that's kind of part one. Okay? Here's the other reason why I think culturally we're really struggling in 2010. I think the other part has to do with us. I don't know about you all, but I really do believe that we live in a day and age where people are very discontent. They're very discontent with their lives. They're very discontent with what they have. And I'm not necessarily talking about every single person in this room. I'm just, just saying as Americans, we're discontent people. And, and I am a teacher, and I teach U.S. history, and I'm going to have actually some of these people show up in my room tomorrow. And one of the things that we talk about in the first couple days of school is this idea of the American dream. And kind of what I tell my students is, with the American dream, here's kind of what we've done, in here's kind of what we've done as a culture today, is we now live in an MTV crib society. And this is going to show somebody's age very quickly. If I just made that statement, you have no idea what I just said, it means you're getting a little older. And that's okay, okay? That's okay. We love you. But there's probably a lot of teenagers and maybe even some college students and maybe some younger parents where that, that resonates with them. So for those of you who have no idea what MTV Cribs is, let me kind of give you a synopsis of it. There's a TV show on MTV where they go into celebrities' houses and they always pick celebrities and athletes who live the most over-the-top lifestyles and have the most over-the-top things. And the, the celebrity or the athlete or the, who, the musician, whoever they are, give you a tour of their house. 
And so you walk in, and they're like, here's my garage, and they have like 15 cars, and the cars are like each worth $100,000, and they take you into their kitchen, and somehow they built a Starbucks with a barista all the time in their kitchen. And you're like, what is, this is crazy. And then you go to the backyard, and they have like a, a big tiger cage in there, and there's a tiger hanging out, and you're like, right on. I don't know why you need a tiger, but I like it. You go to the bedroom, there's like a bed, and it's spinning, and there's like lights everywhere. And I find myself at like 10 o'clock at night, I used to watch the show in college, and I'd be sitting there at 10 o'clock at night, I'm flipping through channels, and here comes MTV Cribs, and I'm watching, and in my mind, I'm like, this is the dumbest stuff I've ever seen. Like, why does anybody need a tiger in their backyard? Or like, let's put sharks in our pool, that seems cool. Or whatever it is, I don't know. But then all of a sudden, I also find myself being, how awesome would that be to have some of that stuff? Like, I totally wish I had 15 cars, so like every day... And then every other week, I could drive something different. And yes, that's a little exaggerated. And yes, maybe many of us don't look and say, wow, I want to have a Starbucks in my house. Maybe we do. (laughs) But I think that you can understand the example that as people, what we do is we look around and we see other people and what other people have. And we say to ourselves, man, if only I could have a little more money. Or if only I could have a bigger house. Or if only I could have a better job. Or if only I could have cooler friends, then I'd be content. And so once again, I think that what happens for many of us is we look around at everything that's around us and we buy into this idea that we need to have all this stuff or we need to be all these things. And if we're not, then we somehow messed up or we somehow failed. And I think what it goes back to, and you're like, wow, this is a long explanation for something, but I think it's an important one. What it goes back to is in verse 15, If we're going to be men and women of God, what Paul's saying to us in Colossians is that we need to have peace in our lives. Yet that idea seems to completely contradict who we are as people today. The good news is this. Paul doesn't stop there. Paul continues on and Paul begins to explain how we can get to that point of peace. And I promise you that by the end of the sermon, I will come back to this idea of suffering and I'll come back to this idea of hardship. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the next two verses. Because the next two verses to me explain everything that we need to understand about how we have peace in our lives and how we live at peace with what we have. But before I even read the verses, I want to tell you guys a story that I read a couple years ago. And I don't know about you all, and I know that all of us have a different idea of what sermons should be like, and we all have kind of our preferences, but for me personally, I love stories. I love when Tom or Jeremy or Anton gets up here and they tell stories. Because I really resonate with stories, and it's just easier for me to understand the Bible when people explain that. And I think if you look at the New Testament and you look at Jesus' teaching, he uses stories and parables all the time to bring truth. And so that's kind of what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell a story. Hopefully by hearing the story, it will make make this make more sense. Uh, I just want to give a warning. And the warning is this. If you've ever heard my dad speak, ever, or you've ever been to a Sunday school class that my dad has taught, I can almost promise you you've heard this. I am not in any way trying to be unoriginal. And I did everything I possibly could to avoid using this analogy. And it's like, as I kept looking at this, I'm like, it's just too perfect. I have to use it. So I apologize. My dad is here. I apologize for stealing his stuff. But that's just kind of what we're doing this morning. In 2007, the Washington Post wanted to write an article. And the whole purpose of the article was to write about the busyness of people's lives. And so what the Washington Post wanted to do is they wanted to go to the busiest place in Washington, D.C. and see what would happen if they kind of changed the norm and disturbed the peace a little bit. So what they decided to do was to get a musician. 
to find one of the greatest musicians and to put him down in the subway system and have him play for an hour and see if anybody would pay attention and listen. And the guy they chose is a guy named Joshua Bell. And unless you've heard my dad speak or you've read this article or you know anything about music, probably many of you have no idea who Joshua Bell is. So let me just give you all a little background of this guy. Joshua Bell, in many circles today, is considered to be one of the greatest violin players in the world. As a young boy, 12, 13 years old, he was kind of this prodigy kid, you know, one of those like freak athletes or great musicians and they're freakishly talented for such a young age. That was him. And so when he was really young, he started touring at a young age all around the world. And Joshua Bell now is in his early 40s, but he has played in front of anybody who is anybody in this world. Presidents, royalty, kings, queens, the guys played in front of him. I don't know, I've actually used this several times in examples that I've done, and I've never actually heard anybody say they've seen this guy play live. But if you ever go to a Joshua Bell concert, it costs about $100 a ticket to go. On top of that, this is kind of irrelevant, but I think it's kind of a cool thing. Uh, Joshua Bell plays a $3.5 million violin. Okay, my point in saying that is you better be pretty good if you're playing a three and a half million dollar violin. That's a lot of money to invest in something. Um, And so what they decided to do was they approached Joshua Bell and they said, here's our idea. What if we took the greatest violin player, stuck him in the middle of the subway? How many people would pay attention? How many people would stop? How many people would listen? And I'll let you in your own hearts try to answer that question of how many people you thought may have stopped as they were listening to Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell shows up. 7.45 in the morning. The whole task is to play six songs. Play for about 45 minutes and to see what happens. And what the Washington Post did, and I actually think this is kind of cool, is they placed cameras all throughout the subway so that they could go back and count the amount of people that walked by him that day or the amount of people that were there. So Joshua Joshua Bell plays six songs. And out of the six songs that he plays, 1,097 people walked by. Okay, 45 minutes. That's how many people were walking by going to work in the morning. Out of the 1,097 people that walked by Joshua Bell, 27 people quickly walked by him and dropped money or change uh, into the case that he had. Out of the 1,097 people that walked by him, only six people stopped to listen to him. And out of the six people that stopped to listen to him, only one person recognized who he was because she had seen him in concert two weeks before. And if you ever want to go see this, you can go on YouTube and you can type in Joshua Bell and you can find the video of it because it's pretty incredible to see. But it's amazing because here you have the greatest violin player, one of the greatest musicians in the world today, yet people were so consumed with what they had to do that they totally walked by and they miss him. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all two reasons why I think that this was happening. And shockingly, and this is why I said when I came back to this analogy, it just made so much sense. I think the same two reasons why people walk by Joshua Bell are the same two reasons and the same two warnings and the same two encouragements that Paul gives us today this morning of how we can have a life of peace in a pretty chaotic world. So let's go back to our Bibles and let's go back to Scripture up here and let's look at verse 16. Here's what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. What happened with Joshua Bell, in my opinion, is this. This is part one of why people didn't stop to listen to him. I think one of the biggest reasons why people didn't listen to him or people didn't even notice him was because most of us, and I'm going to go ahead and take a risk by saying this, most of us know nothing about the violin, okay? I know nothing about the violin. 
I've never studied it. I've never read a book on it. I don't even know who Joshua Bell is outside of reading this article, really, and doing some research on him for this. And so I would have been one of those people as well. I would have been the guy who was like, who's the idiot who's making all the noise over there? I'm just trying to have a peaceful, just calm day, okay? People don't know anything about the violin. How do you expect anybody to understand the violin or understand that he's even good? Because in my opinion with me, you could have taken the most mediocre violin player and you could have taken the greatest violin player, you could have stuck both of them in the subway, and I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference because I've never studied anything about playing the violin. And I think that that's the same thing that Paul's looking at. He's just saying you want to have peace with Christ. You want to see Jesus every day in your life. Well, then the way that you do it is you have to get into Scripture. And I know that as Christians, that's, a, that's something we like to say a lot. But I think that there's a big, big misconception that a lot of Christians have when it comes to approaching our time in Scripture. Because I also think we live in a culture today where we watch a lot of shows and we read a lot of magazines that are all about how to make our lives better. I mean, that's why a guy like Dr. Phil and Oprah have such high ratings because people watch them because they want to know, hey, how do I improve my life? That's why all these magazines and all these health magazines are so popular because people read those, here's six steps to have a better body. And so people read those things and now we want to apply them to our life. And I think that sometimes for some of us what we do is we take that exact same mentality to Scripture. Okay, I'm going to spend 10 minutes or I'm going to spend 30 minutes, I'm going to open up the Bible, I'm going to read it, and by the end of my time, I want to feel better about who I am. I'm guilty of that a lot. And I would say that most of the time I spend in my life in reading the Bible, that's the approach that I have. And I think that it's wrong. And I'm convicted of that. Because I think that what Paul's saying is, when we go to Scripture as Christians, as men and women of God who are trying to live this life and figure it out, we're not reading it for us. We're not reading it to check something off a list. The reason why we read it is to get into the presence of who God is. That hopefully by reading scripture, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, God, I want to learn more of who you are. And then hopefully by learning more of who you are, it will help me understand the way I live my life. Does God teach us how to live our lives in the Bible? Absolutely. But I think the big part that we miss is God also teaches us a lot about who he is. And I have so many students every single year who come into my room and we talk about this stuff and they say to me over and over again, I can't read the Bible. Why not? It's so boring or I can't read the Bible, or I'm not consistent, and I spend 10 minutes today, and then I'll go look at it next week. And I think the reason that that happens for them, and the reason that happens for me, is when we do that, we're reading it for ourselves. How do I take something out of this to apply to me? But I think that what Paul's saying is, if you want to have peace in your life, and if you want to understand where God is in your life, you have to know who he is. And I think that that's why for so many of us, and for myself as well, we go through difficulties and we go through hardships and our response to that is to say, God, I don't know where you are. And kind of the challenge that I throw back at myself is, do I really go enough to Scripture to really look at who God is? Because if I don't know who God is, then how am I ever going to see Him when these things happen? The second thing that Paul does, and we'll go back to Scripture again, is he says this, and whatever you do, this is verse 17, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's go back to our Joshua Bell example for a second. I think that the other reason why a lot of people miss the fact that Joshua Bell was playing a violin, and you have the greatest violin player doing it as well, is because they were so consumed by what they had to do. Because their whole focus was, I got to get to work, 
because I got to do this. Or I got to go get to breakfast because I got to go talk to somebody about this. Joshua Bell said this. After he did this little experiment, Joshua Bell went back and he read, or I'm sorry, he watched the video. And here's kind of the comments that he made after watching the video. He said this, I'm surprised at the number of people who don't pay attention at all. As I'm invisible. Because you know what? I'm making a lot of noise. I'm going to read that quote one more time because I think that's really profound. I'm surprised at the number of people who don't pay attention at all as I'm invisible. Because you know what? I'm making a lot of noise. And I wonder, just in the same way that Joshua Bell looks at that, and he's like, how do these people not hear me? They may pass by me, and they may be too busy, but how do, they, how do so many of them just completely ignore the fact that I'm there? I wonder if God says that as well about us. I'm here trying to make as much noise as I can. I'm here trying to get into your life. I'm here trying to get into your heart. I'm trying to make all the noise in the world, but you're just walking on by me like I don't even exist. And I think that we, we do. As people, we love to find things to put our identity in. And me as a person... I love the Lord, don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of things that I find on a daily basis, not on purpose, that I'm putting my identity in that have nothing to do with God. And so I look at my job, and I look at my marriage, and I look at my friends, and I look at the way that I look and my image, and all of a sudden, I, I tend to be consumed with all of those things and less consumed about what God's actually trying to do in my life. So let's go back to the, what it said at the beginning. Paul says this, the peace of Christ should dwell in your hearts. But the problem is we live in such a distracting society. And some of you are sitting here today and you hear that word peace and you're just like me and you're like, I could never have peace in my life. Because, look, here's the bottom line. You have no idea, and I think this is fair to say to me, you have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea how hard my life is. You have no idea the experience that I've had. And my response back to you is, you're exactly right. And I think that what happens in the misconception that I buy into and that I bought into a lot of times is when we see the word peace, the way that we interpret that is God tells us that we'll have peace. What that means is our lives will be better. But what the Lord's saying to us this morning is if we get into Scripture and we put our identity in Christ, it's not that your life all of a sudden becomes better. It's not that all of a sudden you become happier. What he's saying is you have peace within that your hearts are at peace. Once again, not because you have every answer, not that you can explain all the hardships that are in your life, but because you know who God is and you trust and believe in the truth of the, what the Word says about Him. And some of you still may be sitting here and you're saying, I don't buy it. I don't. I hear what you're saying, but I don't buy it. And to kind of conclude this morning, there's one example that I want to give you from Scripture that I think is, is so profound and I think that many of you will probably relate with because... As I've read this at times in my life, I've felt like I've been there. And I think that if there's hope for us, and if there's an example for Scripture in there, this is it, of how we live a life of peace, of how we wake up every day content with our circumstances no matter what's happening. If you all would turn, if you have your Bibles, to Psalm 13. And if you don't have it, that's okay because the Scripture will be up here. Psalm 13, if you don't know a lot about it, was written by David. King David. And so King David by what you're going to read, has definitely, gone, has definitely come upon tough times. And as you hear the words, maybe there's some of you sitting here this morning who are saying, that's totally me, and that is my heart, and that is how I feel every single day when I wake up. Let me read this for us, and then I'll kind of explain how this all fits together. 
David says this in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. What David is saying, and I'll go on and I'll read the rest in a second, but what David's saying basically is, God, you feel so far away from me right now. God, I have no idea what's going on, and I have no idea what's happening, and I feel so broken, and I feel so hurt, and I'm just dealing with a lot of pain. He even says in verse 3, and I think this is a bold thing, but I love it. He looks to God, and he's saying, God, look at me. Look at me. Where are you? Why does it feel like you're ignoring me all the time? And so if we stop there, and that's where David stopped, this would be one of the hardest things in Scripture to ever read, and you feel really bad for the guy. But here's the hope that I think every single one of us has this morning. Here's what David says next. Despite all those things, despite all the hardship, all the brokenness, all the pain, he says this, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. And what David is saying, and what an example this is, and as I look at my own life, how great would this be for me to, to, to be at a point in my life where I could do this? David says, even though I am struggling, and even though I am hurting, and even though I, I feel pain that is so unimaginable, I hold on to the truth of who you are, Lord. I look at the fact that there's an unfailing love that you have for me. What a, what a big word that is, unfailing. Lord, that no matter what, you still love me. No matter what, you still look down on me and you delight. And then he says this, my heart rejoices in your salvation. God, I don't get what's happening. I can't explain it, but I know who you are, and I hold on to that. And I guess to bring this all together, how incredible would it be as men and women of God if we can get to that point? But I think that what we have to do first is we have to look at our lives, and I have to look at my life, and I have to think, what am I doing in my life? And what are the decisions that I'm making that will allow me to see God every day? So how am I spending my time? Am I spending time? Do, I have, do any of you have any moment of silence within your day where you can just rest before the Lord? Because for me, I don't find that happening very often. And for me, that's a convicting thing. And I think that the hope and the promise is that when we do that and we, when we seek after the Lord, He will find us in our pain and in our struggling. And so I think it would be easy for me this morning to get up here and say, and so here's how you do it. For every single one of you, you now go out and here's how you should spend your time. But I honestly can't. And that's what's so hard because every one of you has different schedules and every one of you has different lives. And I think a lot of times we think that in order for me to meet God, I gotta lock my door and I gotta go in my bedroom and I gotta shut everything off. But I think that we can find opportunities every single day, whether that's driving to work and just turning the radio off and just praying or just being in silence and not saying anything at all. Or maybe for me, it's when I go and I work out and I'll listen to a sermon, I'll listen to an iPod and I'll just pray the entire time. People think I probably look angry all the time when I'm working out, but I'm just, I'm just in a zone with the Lord. Or maybe it's, you know, you get to work and instead of going right to the computer and checking what the Cardinals did last night or reading a, some irrelevant argument, article you just say i'm going to get my bible out for 10 minutes for five minutes i'm just going to look at that i don't know what it is for you but i think if we could be people who do that and if you are all, if you already do that 
then you know what I'm talking about. There's incredible ways to meet the Lord. So let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I just thank you uh, for your scripture. I thank you for your truths. And God, I pray for those that are hurting right now, for those that are, are struggling and they're broken and they're, they're feeling so much pain. God, I pray that we can hold on to that and we can go to your scripture and we can go to your word and we can also go to other people and be encouraged more and more by who you are. That as we, as we read our Bibles and as we listen to sermons, as we sing songs, that we wouldn't just do it to do it, but hopefully we would do it just to know more of who you are. That even in the songs that we sing, we can know more of who you are and we can learn more about you. I thank you for the people. I thank you for the hearts of the people. And Lord, we thank you for how you love us. We thank you and we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.